Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. Just over a year ago, two devastating fires in one week shook the New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area. On January 5th, 2022, an early morning fire occurred in a Philadelphia Housing Authority row house split into two apartments housing at least 26 people. Nine children and three adults, all in the same family, died. A surviving child told investigators he had been playing with a lighter and accidentally lit the Christmas tree on fire. The lighter was found near the tree after the fire. None of the smoke alarms in the apartment where the fire started were operational. Four days later, a tragic fire occurred in the Twin Parks Northwest high-rise apartment building in the Bronx. 17 people, including eight children, were killed. 44 people were injured, most of them children. Many were critically hurt. A space heater caused the fire, which was mostly contained to one apartment, but a self-closing door on the apartment and two others at the stairwell did not function correctly. This failure of compartmentation allowed smoke to rapidly fill the building. A history of false alarms caused many to ignore the fire alarm at first. The complex interior structure of the building and its multi-floor apartments made escape confusing and difficult, particularly in low visibility conditions. All the victims died of smoke inhalation. A couple weeks ago, a year later, an NBC News 4 follow-up report found that the building continues to experience complaints about cold temperatures and broken fire doors. These two fires are not isolated cases. Every day, there are fires in multi-unit buildings. Many of them occur in under-resourced communities, involve older buildings with design and maintenance issues, and affect vulnerable populations like children, seniors, and families whose incomes are in the lowest income bracket. Given recent fires like these two, and the continued issues they highlighted, the CFITrainer.net team felt the intricacies of investigating multi-unit, multi-fatality fires merited closer attention. With us today to discuss this topic is Sergeant Paul Maycook, Commanding Officer of the Connecticut State Police Fire and Explosion Investigation Unit. Sergeant Maycook is an IWI certified fire investigator and certified instructor. Sergeant Maycook was the first assigned to the unit in 2005 as a detective. He also served as the Certified Accelerant Detection Canine Handler. He is the immediate past president of the Connecticut chapter of the IWI and president of the Litchfield County Fire Marshals Association. He's an instructor at the University of New Haven, the State of Connecticut Fire Marshals Certification Program, the Connecticut Advanced Fire Investigation and Vehicle Fire Investigation Schools, the Connecticut State Police Academy, and the FBI Academy. He has investigated hundreds of fires and testified at numerous criminal arson trials in both federal and state court. Sergeant Maycook, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we're very grateful. We've been talking about the brutal fires last year in our region, so let's get to it and talk about how these types of fires can be better investigated. So, Paul, what are some of the investigative issues that become more prevalent when you're investigating a multi-fatality or a multi-unit fire or, or both? When I approach some of these investigations, one of my first thoughts goes to uh, legal entry. And I, and I think that's something that should be on the, the, the forefront of every public sector fire investigation, because so often that piece gets overlooked or it gets missed. So I think having that initial thought about legal entry um, is, is going to slow us down a little bit. We're going to be forced 
to ask those questions and, and answer the questions that are going to come up about, you know, how we can legally enter into a fire scene to do that investigation. Because if we miss that step, it can be a huge detriment to the overall outcome uh, of that particular case. Good point. So what about ownership? What about some of the other issues uh, around the building and the people that live there? It, it can be overwhelming in that there are a lot of people, can, they can be very chaotic. And, and we really have to try to make that effort to identify who belongs there, who should be there, who isn't required to be there, who wasn't there at the time of the fire, and start to make those identifications of uh, witnesses and occupants so that we can kind of sort out who has legal authority to allow us to enter the building. And, you know, this is particularly difficult to do when you as the investigator, maybe by yourself, um, or you, you don't have, you know, a whole team available to you or other resources to assist you with this process. Because, again, people are going to be uh, fleeting and they're going to be moving around and, and they're going to be leaving the fire scene, um, perhaps before we can get a chance to even identify them. And I think, you know, if we can do that, that is going to be something that you need to come up with a, a process for to start to triage these people. You know, make sure that you record enough information so that you'll be able to find them later. Excellent. So one of the things that we talked about was, you know, dealing with ownership in a multi dwelling or a, a multi-unit fire, how do you find out about the owner and, and the issues surrounding the area? Ownership of a property can really be a, a tricky thing because many times what we find with some of these uh, larger apartment buildings or complexes or associations that they may have multiple layers to ownership. Usually I like to start by looking at a field property card from a tax assessor's record. And what's nice about uh, technology uh, in today's day and age, to be able to get right on the internet from the scene and go to uh, those databases that contain the information about ownership of a property, whether it be through uh, vision appraisal, for instance, or the municipality's website, their governmental page may have a link to their uh, field uh, record card. So you can go in and, and get an idea, at least, you know, start to gather some information about the property itself and who may own it, you know, legally to, to get into these scenes, you know, obviously exigent circumstances is, you know, something that we can, we can use to at least preliminarily get into these fire scenes to, to start making some preliminary determinations and assess what we need, what we might need for resources. But at some point in time, that exigency is going to run out. And so we need to look for other legal entry means to get into that scene. And I always recommend getting a written consent, you know, so again, in, in that toolbox that, that you arrive at the fire scene with, I always tell new investigators, have some written consent forms and get that written consent early and often, because that written consent then can carry you through the, your investigation 
for the hours or days that it that it may take, even if they're not available. So even if they do leave the scene to go stay with somebody or get other services, you have that that piece of paper. Yeah, um, good points. All good points. I I, I guess I want to step in for a second and say, you know, to the audience, some of this started out as a timeline, and some of these things you may or may not be able to do in the order that we're presenting them. So uh, while I get it, you know. I've heard this before, you know, make sure you make contact with as many witnesses and gather the information about them, as you had said. Uh, some of these owner issues, you know, maybe down the road. And and like you said, you know, getting getting a document signed, that's wonderful. What are, what are some of the other issues uh, going into these multi-unit places uh, that, that are tight-knit communities? Uh, what, what are some of the challenges for you? So, Rod, I think one of the things that we find uh, difficult when we're, you know, starting to get into these scenes is we sometimes will rely on, you know, the the, the friends and neighbors to give us information. And, and that information may not be accurate information. And I think sometimes we get stuck with facts and details that we think are presented to us in truth but in fact may not have occurred the way that they are and, and that's why it's really really important to not only you know get the information from witnesses but to be able to get into that scene to start to collaborate uh the information and start to validate the witness accounts and you know when when we've got multiple people living in these in these buildings that you know, in some cases, we run into issues with different cultural backgrounds, cultural um, differences, maybe language barriers where it becomes difficult for the investigator to communicate. We need to be able to reach out to get more assistance and, and, and more help from, you know, other resources, whether it be a language line or, you know, others in our departments who can help us you know, to navigate through some of these challenges. We, we find it's, it's best, you know, the, the, the model fire investigation team consists of, I think, both, you know, fire investigators who are trained in investigation from both the fire side and the law enforcement side. And I think, you know, way back in the, in the, in the day, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, New Haven, Connecticut put together a, a great model of that joint team concept of a fire investigation team that's comprised of fire law enforcement professionals who kind of work together train together so that they understand what each other does but they each play certain roles and i think if you can do that in your own community it, it really goes a long way because now you can have some of the police officers or the detectives who um, may be available to to help you, they know how to identify some of these folks and what questions to ask them and how to you know get extract some of this important information um, from them. And again, process of getting this information is very, very time consuming. So how do you do that? You have to start somewhere, right? So you, you get out of your your vehicle and, and, and you're going to be inundated with information and you're probably going to, you know, obviously check in with the incident commander. And a lot of times the incident commander is going to have some 
uh, information as to to who to who to talk to. And then, you know, as we start to fan out, you know, we're, you're going to get approached by something in some cases, numerous people who, you know, trying to give you information. So, you know, the, the good old pad and pen trick to start writing down names and, hey, what unit do you live in? Who who lives around you? How many other units are in the in the building? Have you seen any of the other folks that, that live here? Are they at work or are they, you know, away on vacation and start collecting as many names as possible? And hopefully if you can enlist some help from others on scene, whether they be, you know, other investigators that are working with you. I often find that many, many municipalities have volunteer organizations that come out to assist with some of these fire disasters and the Red Cross uh, being one of them. If they respond with a response vehicle and they do some uh, interviews of the, the fire victims to get you know, demographic information. And, and, and a lot of times they'll offer them some goods and services so that they have a place to go. We collaborate with the Red Cross uh, folks to get some of that information. Other towns may have volunteer uh, cert groups that, that are coming out to provide uh, rehab for the fire department and for, you know, some of the victims. So, you know, part of that is having a good working relationship with everybody on the scene. So, they all know that we're trying to get this information, get get everybody identified. Um, again, your police officers who may be on scene to assist and provide some type of, uh, you know, whether it's traffic control or crowd control, a lot of these police officers um, routinely get people's information. So really, it's just, you know, collecting as much of the data that you can and then following, circling back around. If, if, if you're a team of investigators, um, it's always good to, you know, say, look, let's let's meet back in, in 20 minutes to discuss where we're at, what information we've gathered, what we still need to, uh, to get so that we can we can move forward. So communication is really, really important when it comes to, you know, you know fire investigation and, and, and working together with with a team of investigators so that we don't duplicate information. You know, the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you get, you know, a couple of witnesses and you're, you're starting to, to talk to them and halfway through an interview, you realize that your partner had talked to them, you know, 20 minutes ago and they're repeating everything that they said. Um, so, so, you know, we want to be efficient with this information. We want to be, you know, sympathetic to that, to the victims as well. Their time is valuable and, you know, they've just gone through a traumatic event. So we want to treat them, um, you know, with the compassion and with the sympathy that they need so that we can, you know, uh, again, un they can understand what we're there trying to do, that we're really there trying to help. And sometimes, uh, you know, it needs to wait. Sometimes we have to, you know, just identify somebody and we, we're not able to interview them right away. We're going to have to come back to them uh, later on. Got it. So let's talk about fire. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of things you need to corral, <laughs> a lot of people and information that you need to corral um, at these types of fires. What do you need to know about fire in a multi-unit situation? So, Rod, I think one of the most important things that we need to, you know, start to assess when we do our preliminary size up of the scene is how that building is constructed what the makeup of the building is because we need to understand about you know smoke and fire flow path travel we need to really get a good understanding of uh what type of construction 
the building is made of so that we can start to uh, develop our hypotheses about the origin of the fire and how that fire developed and where that fire traveled, how it affects each of the components of that building and ultimately um, maybe some of the fire victims. Um, if we're talking, uh, you know, a, a multi-story building that, you know, maybe consists of 14, 15 floors, um, obviously we know that there are going to be cores in the building that are going to act as chimneys to uh, carry smoke and, and, and fire throughout that building. We need to identify those, those areas. Number one, uh, first and foremost, for the safety of, of the investigator, but but as far as you know, how we can start to hypothesize uh, where this fire started and, and how it traveled. Um, again, as with any fire investigation, we can't even deter begin to really effectively determine cause until we've determined origin. And, and origin can be difficult when it comes to some of these uh, buildings based on on travel. So we rely statements of witnesses and and you know the firefighters. You know, we, we need to start gathering uh, that information and, and, and really doing an assessment of the building as a whole. And again, it, it becomes difficult when there's catastrophic damage to a building because we may not have anything to really look at. And so we're going to start to rely on, uh, you know, people with, with knowledge of that building to start drawing us, you know, sketches or, or you know, maybe locate and produce some schematics or some some architectural drawings that they may have of that building so that we can start to um, put this this information together and plug it in into our and into you know some of the the steps of our 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 scientific method okay so in a lot of these fires it seems like a lot of the building or most of the building is left um, and I know there's a huge frustration even when I read some of the stories earlier about smoke detectors not working um, and, and what ends up happening there. What else should investigators be thinking about related to fire suppression systems? Talk to the fire department incident commander and try to get an idea of what that building contains for whether it's fire suppression or uh, you know, fire alarm systems, you know, many times in our jurisdictions, you may already have that knowledge of the building because many of these buildings are inspectable and they're required to be inspected at uh, certain intervals. And so you as the investigator may be responsible in, in that uh, instance for conducting the inspection of the very building that you're now investigating a fire. In. And that can be very, very valuable information to you as the investigator because you know the building system already pre-fire and in that case um you know you've got an idea of what should be there but you don't necessarily know what is there at the time of the fire and that's where it becomes real critical for the fire suppression teams that are in that building to be able to report back to the incident commander about what's what conditions they found. We're now faced with this this building that's been, you know, damaged by a fire. We know the the systems that are supposed to be there, but what what went wrong? One of the first 
places that we start is on the outside of the building, right? We can make a lot of observations by doing an exterior examination. So oftentimes, um, I think we get caught as investigators um, by not stepping back and, and really taking a look at, at the surroundings, whether it be, um, you know, where the electricity enters into the building, um, where does that electricity come from? You know, take a step back, look around at these systems. Do we have a situation on the outside of the building that failed that could have contributed to why one of the building systems inside the building failed, right? Did we have a water main break? Do we have a, uh, was the gate valve shut off on the fire suppression system? Those are things that, you know, we're going to want to, hopefully we can gather that information fairly quickly when we do our exterior examination. And, and the fire department may have already um, discovered some of those things and they may have that information. So, you know, it's, it's real critical in, in these uh, situations to document what's going on at the time that the fire department arrives and, and what types of things they've done to um, either shut off a system in the building, um, whether it be, you know, a, a, a gas main or, you know, some type of a, a fuel system that, that feeds the building. And the same thing with these, these fire suppression systems. Um, you know, many times when we, when we talk to witnesses and we talk to firefighters, one of the questions that we should be asking is, if you were in the building at the time of the fire and you evacuated, what caused you to become aware of the fire? Did you hear somebody screaming? Did you smell the smoke? Did you hear an alarm going off? Many times those details can become very, very important and people forget, or they're just not asked the question. Um, I find a lot of times what I like to do when we do go to these fires, especially when it involves fatalities or injuries, where smoke alarms and fire alarm systems become very, very important information for this uh, incident. And, and because believe me, they'll, they'll play out down the road um, in litigation, whether it's criminal or civil litigation, a wrongful death uh, litigation. Um, we need to know as investigators what was going on in, with, with those systems. I'll often go back to the 911 calls that come in about that given uh, incident to hear the the call and to listen to see if I can hear in the background that fire suppression, um, whether the suppression system or the detection system, the alarm system activated. So we need to again talk to the firefighters who went in initially to find out. You know, did you hear the alarm system? Did you do anything to um, either activate the alarm or, or turn it off? You know, in some cases. Um, when the fire department arrives, if the if the system hasn't been activated, they may take steps to activate it to to evacuate other other floors that may not even be affected. So those are the types of things that yeah. that we need to you know keep in mind and, and document. Boy, the word documentation just keeps coming up, huh? I don't know how anybody'd survive the job you guys do without writing down or recording or keeping track of everything that was going on because it seems like you're surrounded by a whirlwind of information. Um, we haven't talked much about fatalities and I, I don't think we need to get in depth about fatalities. We are going to be doing a couple of modules on CFI trainer related to uh, fatal fires, but I, uh, I would like to, 
to hear what you think about the the sensitivity or the changes that happen to you when you're dealing with a fire that has fatalities. I want to do the best fire investigation that I can do for my own personal pride so that when I go to bed at night, I can say, look, you know, I, I had an assignment today. I went out. I hopefully did a little bit better job on this fire than I did the last fire because that's always, you know, one of my goals is to to improve and, and get better. I think we can all improve at what we do in everything, but especially when it comes to, to fire investigation. And And when I approach a fatality, you know, I think about those things, but I also think about, you know, getting answers, getting answers for the loved ones of the victim who passed away in a fire. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, let's face it, um, we've all, um, as investigators, um, either read about or, or, or been involved in a, in a fire investigation involving a fatality that, that hits close to home. Maybe it's, a, you know, a neighbor, maybe it's um, a child, God forbid, you know, we have these losses with, with children and, and we have children of our own. So, you know, we have to, to stop and, and, and sometimes, you know, remind ourselves that uh, while this, the situation and the, the, the circumstances are, are, are very tragic, we have to push forward and, and, and do what we're trained to do so that we can provide answers for the families and, and the loved ones of these, of these victims. And, and, you know, I've had the unfortunate privilege and, and it sounds like an oxymoron, but um, of investigating several uh, line of duty deaths involving firefighters. And, and I think, you know, that, that always hits a little bit close to home. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, emotion and grief that, that, exists on those on those fire scenes and you know it's there's a very uh, delicate way to approach the firefighters who went in and 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 maybe uh you know did work right alongside of of their fallen brothers or sisters who we have to get that information uh from and and it's 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 sometimes difficult to do because of the emotion involved and and you know we want to make sure that we, we get as many facts as we can. All good thoughts. And you uh, always come through as a caring person who's thorough. And uh, I'm sure everybody you work with is grateful for that, as well as the victims and the families that you work with. Um, what about Bridgeport? You spoke of this earlier. So I had a very tragic case down in Bridgeport. Um, it involved uh, city-owned housing um units that uh, uh were occupied um by you know various families and we responded to assist with the investigation of a four person fatality and it was it was tragic it was uh, uh the mother um was uh in her early 20s and she had three small children um two twins who were four and then she had a six-year-old and they perished in this fire that occurred in their apartment and the fire was was caused by unattended cooking on the kitchen stove and mom had um been uh, out earlier in the evening at, at school and she came came home um the 
children were were sleeping upstairs in in their bedrooms and she fell asleep on the couch as she was uh cooking uh on the stove and when she was awoken um to uh the smoke by the smoke alarms that were that were actually functioning in the in the apartment um her her children had now come downstairs and they were trying to um get out and unfortunately um mom was not oriented enough to be able to get to the door um to unlock the door and, and and get any of them out so they all were found um in the apartment uh, on the first floor level um in the living room area trying to get to the door and it was it was a very very um emotional scene because we could see in the apartment the sooty handprints and the sooty footprints where these children had been running around trying uh to get out and they just couldn't uh get get mom uh, mom's attention uh enough to uh to get out so um one of the first things that we did in that particular case because the uh city had um provided us with maintenance records of the units we identified that apartment has having just been inspected ironically the day before the fire and the inspection had been uh completed um there had been some deficiencies noted and corrected particularly with some of the smoke alarms in the uh in the unit and at the time um there were i can't remember the exact number of smoke alarms but um i believe one or two of them had been just replaced the afternoon before the fire um all had been tested and documented in this report as having been functioning and that information um that report that we got um from the uh the property manager um became critical information to the investigation because we knew that down the road this was going to be an element to some litigation um you know it's it's ironic that that inspection had happened so close to the fire um we find uh, you know that many times people will you know remove smoke alarms and they'll take take them down or remove batteries from them uh you know after an inspection you know when they're cooking they go off or steam from the shower so you know any anything that sets these alarms off um it's very difficult once the inspector leaves to to really enforce the the maintenance of those uh that equipment by an actual tenant. Um, but in this case, we were aware that all of those uh, detectors were were you know functioning before the fire, hours before the fire, based on this report. And also during the investigation, we were able to uh, locate all of the detectors and determine their functionality, which in fact, um, they were all functioning properly. So um you know we have eyewitnesses from neighboring and adjacent units that heard the alarms going off in some cases for several minutes um before the call to 911 was made and and that that's a frustrating thing and i think you know we oh. see this all too often in, in these larger uh buildings really i think as a society we sometimes become complacent you know one false alarm leads to a second false alarm to the to the point where people just don't really take these alarms as seriously as they should you know they're 
they're assuming in a lot of cases that, oh, it's just another alarm. Somebody's cooking. You know, they set their smoke alarm off on a weekly basis when they're cooking or, or something. So they ignore them and they don't make those efforts to, you know, check and, and verify or, or even call 911 for the fire department response, whether it's a false alarm or whether it's an actual, you know, real fire or smoke condition. So, you know, gathering that information is 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 critical. And, you know, we were able to get, you know, witnesses to to uh, give us information that these these fires were, or I'm sorry, these smoke alarms were going off several minutes before. And it, it all seemed to, you know, validate what the uh, housing authority inspector had documented in his report. And and that's that's huge information to have because down the road, this particular case became a huge, huge civil litigation uh, case. Um, I was deposed on it uh, a couple of times by, you know, several different uh, attorneys. And and th these cases linger for a long, long time because of the ramifications that they have. So, you know, one of the things that that, you know, I learned and and throughout my career, we learn lessons the hard way. Right. I remember investigating a fatal fire um, earlier on in my career, and I remember getting deposed. And I had documented the smoke alarms in the building and and in the particular um, you know residence and took photos of them and you know documented their locations within the building and I noted all that in my report and I remember during a deposition I got a question from an attorney about uh, the smoke alarms and I referred to my report to explain how many there were and where they were and. Uh, the, the next couple of questions that he asked, I, I was unprepared for. And, and, and there were questions such as, hey, uh, what, what, what kind, what brand of smoke alarm was it? What type was the smoke alarm? Was it, uh, you know, an ionization or was it a photoelectric uh, smoke alarm? What was the uh, serial number on it? What was the battery uh, uh, condition? What was the, um, the expiration date of this de detector? And, and I kind of learned a lesson that day. You know, I didn't have that information. I didn't take the time to, to, to document those alarms that thoroughly. So now um, what, I've, what I've learned to do and what my teams do is we take the time to not only document the locations and the, the number of alarms, but we'll go as far as to, you know, without, uh, you know, spoliation issues and without, you know, any destructive, uh, testing or destructive examination of these these items will will more thoroughly document them so we may remove them from you know the ceiling or the wall we'll you know photograph all the uh, information about uh you know what type and brand and expiration date um, we actually started removing batteries and and doing uh battery uh testing with a you know a, a voltmeter so we'll we'll take a a brand new nine volt battery we'll calibrate it with the, the voltmeter to show nine volts and then we'll we'll photograph that and then we'll next photograph the the battery and the smoke detector on the on the on the uh the meter to show how many volts are in that battery um you know in some cases we can actually function the the, the alarm to see if it's it's functioning in other cases we may not be able to but the the documentation that we do with smoke alarms just for instance now is is much more thorough than than we used to for those reasons um and then in, okay. you know um, go ahead some cases we'll take uh, great care to preserve 
those smoke alarms. Um, I know in the Bridgeport case, um, you know, we had no reason to seize them or, or take them from the scene. That's usually not a good idea, especially in the public sector. Um, but I knew that, you know, there was going to be private um, investigations, uh, you know, as a result of this fire. And there were going to be other investigators coming in after us. Um, so I preserved those uh, smoke alarms by, again, we, we documented everything in place and, and, and where we found it. But then I took a step further and I, and I removed each of the alarms and I put them in, in bags and labeled where they were found. And then I put them in a secure place in the fire scene so that they wouldn't get um, damaged or they wouldn't get uh, lost, if you will, or inadvertently uh, discarded or destroyed. You know, those are the things that we need to think about, unfortunately, um, you know, as investigators that, you know, we need to think down the road. We need to think about the questions that we're going to be asked and, and, and the answers that are going to be asked of us after we do these investigations. So I think, you know, that's something, um, you know, to take away from, you know, some of the lessons that I've learned is, is just how thorough um, we are when we're, we're documenting. Everybody's learning every day, huh? It's, uh, and with what you guys do, it, it, it just continues to amaze me as long as I've been working with you, how many details you're dealing with and how many different jobs and processes are included inside of your overall job to investigate a fire with this much going on. Um, what, you, you talked about how you learned you know, from being in in this court case and, and having this lawyer come and ask you these kind of questions. Any other tips that you'd like to give to investigators where they've seen, you know, relating to multi-unit or multi-fatality fires where it's easily, you know, it's easy to get tripped up? Right. I think, you know, as I said before, I, I think that the most important thing to remember here is is you're not alone as, as a fire investigator. You know, we often times due to, to various uh, restrictions or constraints that we have on a budget or on a uh, manpower. I, I know everybody's suffering these days from lack of manpower is, is to remember that you're not alone. And there's always somebody that you can call and at least consult with or, you know, ask questions and hopefully bring some extra resources in that you, you may not have. And I think we need to um, you know, in these instances with, with multi-units, um, sometimes we do need that extra help and you may need to look, um, whether you're, you know, local or state or federal, you, you need to look to some of the other um, resources that are out there that, that can help us out. And, and again, looking beyond just the fire scene investigation, um, there are many code issues that sometimes will come into, into these uh, equations when it comes to some of these building uh, that require uh, the building code or the fire code to be um, present in, in, in these uh, particular buildings so that we don't have injuries or fatalities when, when fires, you know, happen. And, you know, sometimes just, you know, consulting and making sure that you've dotted your, your I's and crossed your T's and, and done the documentation um, sometimes you may want to hold that scene for a little bit longer, you know, so often, you know, when we're, we're, we're done with the scene, I'll, I'll step back and say, okay, you know, I think we're done, but do we want to just maintain custody of the scene and go home and 
you know, sleep on it and come back in the morning just to make sure that we got everything. Because when we walk away from that scene, we don't know what's going to happen and, and things can can be changed or altered or, you know, again, discarded, um, whether it's inadvertently or inadvertently. And, and we want to make sure that we 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 don't um, have that happen to us if, if we're not sure. So, you know, use your resources. Um, you know, work together, work in those teams that that we talked about. I, I'm a firm believer of a of a team concept and, and doing these investigations, communicating um, together. Um, again, they take time, you know, look for those witnesses. You, you keep searching for the witnesses until you've exhausted um, all your possibilities. You know, we've had witnesses come forward or found witnesses weeks after a fire that have provided, you know, answers that 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 really, you know, add to our data and and you know allow us to either prove or disprove a hypothesis so you know obviously when it comes to these multi uh units you more more and more people um to interview it, it it does you know make make the task a little bit more challenging but you know again it's it's exhausting work sometimes but but it does it it, it can have great uh results that can can be uh really really successful Thanks for coming on today. I, uh, I, and we all really appreciate your focus on these fires. Uh, some of them very tragic. Uh, Paul or Sergeant Maycook, I should say. I'm sure uh, you join us at CFITrainer.net and sending condolences to the families and departments affected. And uh, once again, just thanks so much for your time. Absolutely, Brad, and thank you for all you and Stonehouse Media and your your team does for fire investigation. You guys are a huge asset. Um, and, and we're really, really lucky as an industry to have you behind us and have your support and, and the great work that you do. Um, you really, it's, it's, it has a huge impact on, on us as investigators. And, and, you know, I think I can speak for, you know, myself and a lot of my colleagues and, and even some of my students that, you know, use CFITrainer.net and listen to the podcast that you do here. Um, and it's just we're we're real lucky to have this because uh, it's it's a great way to get information out and share information. So thank you uh, to to you and all your staff. Wow, thank you, Paul. That that means a lot coming from you. Uh, we're we're incredibly grateful for what we've been able to get involved in, and it's it's been life changing. So thanks again for your time today. All right, Rod. Thanks. Just a reminder. Register for the IAAI's ITC in North Carolina. It's coming up quick, and it's happening this spring. It's a great place. There's a casino there, beautiful surroundings. We look forward to seeing you there. Again, go to the IAAIITC.com website to register and book your hotel room. Last month, the IAAI Foundation kicked off a fundraising drive with a goal of raising $100,000 in 2023 to support CFITrainer.net's future. The driving force behind this challenge is IWI past president, Jerry Nailis. Jerry, thanks for your support. We hope to have Jerry on the podcast next month. We've included a link to donate to CFI Trainer on this podcast page. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. There's also support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, and voluntary online donations 
from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next month. For the IWI and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. Thank you.